The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us from remote locations over the Internet today, as well as listeners who are tuning in on affiliate stations in Washington, New Hampshire, Florida, Massachusetts, Illinois, and across the country. Thank you for being with us again. In just a moment, the senior most woman in the U.S. House of Representatives, Ms. Marcy Kaptur, will be joining us to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, more importantly, the use of the Trade Promotion Authority to rush a deal through Congress. If you aren't familiar with the Pacific Trade Deal, well, then hang on to your hats because this is an initiative which will have a tremendous impact on the U.S. economy, just as NAFTA once did. But before Ms. Kaptur joins us, As is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about her background. Marsha Carolyn Kaptur was born in Toledo, Ohio, to a family which operated a small grocery store. Kaptur was the first in her family to attend college. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, her master's from the University of Michigan, and did her postgraduate work at MIT. Kaptur's love affair with public policy began early. When she was just 13 years old, she volunteered for the Ohio Democratic Party. And some 10 years later, Ms. Kaptur found herself serving on the Toledo, Toledo Lucas County Planning Commission, followed by a stint as the director of planning for the National Center for Urban Ethnic Affairs. Kaptur was then appointed by President Jimmy Carter as an urban advisor to the White House. Then in 1981... She was recruited to run for Congress. She joined the House of Representatives in 1983, and she's not only the first woman to serve on the Defense Subcommittee, she's also been a powerful voice on the Appropriations Committee and Banking Committee. Kaptur is one of the senior most members in the House after being elected to 17 terms and has a track record that speaks volumes about her popularity in Ohio, something we're going to hear more about in the next hour. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report the longest-serving woman in the 114th House of Representatives, Ms. Marcy Kaptur. Thank you for joining us today, Ms. Kaptur. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be on your program and uh, speak with people all over the country, but certainly uh, in the California region where I've traveled many times and had relatives live in the San Jose area, the broad greater San Jose area. Yes, well, uh, I will say that we love having you visit us. <laughs> uh, we we get a different perspective. I'll tell you, when you live in California, most of the news is about California, and as you know, lately it's a it's about water, uh, and we seem to get uh, more than our share of that. But uh, so we we do need people to visit us from other states, so we get a broader perspective. Uh, now on today today's program, I thought maybe a good place to open the program would be to start with the Trans-Pacific Partnership itself. This is a deal that's been six years in the making. Can you walk us through some of the key ideas in this extremely complex multi-country agreement so we have an understanding of what is the administration hoping to accomplish with this agreement? Well, their stated goal is to set the rules of trade in the Pacific. And, of course, this is... uh, of concern to California because you actually are the close, you're on the Pacific and uh, your ports uh, take in and uh, ship out uh, so much of this uh, trade between the United States and the Pacific Rim countries. Um, the deal itself uh, can only be read uh, by members of Congress uh, if they get special clearance and they go to a special room. I can't tell you everything that's in it because actually it would 
open me to criminal prosecution by the government of the United States. So, um, so there's a lot of secrecy around this agreement. Huge. And um, only four of the approximately 28 chapters in the agreement deal with trade uh, itself, which is what our Constitution says that uh, Congress has the power to regulate trade. Uh, but many of the other chapters cover items like investment that allow corporations to sue uh, our country, uh, to sue uh, various states, to sue local governments for uh, practices they believe are preventing them uh, from uh, maximizing their return, uh, or they object to some practice, for example, labeling of meat or in food. Uh, I have very much always supported local initiatives to label, federal initiatives, so you know where your food comes from. And um, recently, because of a prior trade agreement, there was a World Trade Organization ruling that resulted in Congress having a vote on overturning country of origin labeling based on one of these trade rulings by an organization that Americans directly don't have any voice in, the World Trade Organization. So these trade agreements often go way beyond tariffs, which is what they used to be about. And they have resulted overall in a tremendous amount of job outsourcing from our country, including from California, uh, where jobs were relocated post-NAFTA to Mexico, for example, uh, or... uh, to places in Latin America, um, and we literally have seen U.S. corporations pick up and outsource production elsewhere, and since these trade agreements have been uh, signed uh, in the past with other countries, we see that in every single instance when where one of these agreements is signed, rather than having a trade balance or surplus with those countries, the United States ends up in trade deficit to the tune of over $10, billion, $10 trillion dollars, uh, since 1975, and that results in hundreds of millions of lost jobs in this country. And so they haven't been working uh, to meet the promises that um, were made. We've been exporting jobs uh, rather than exporting more products than we are importing, and we've had a net loss of income of of that level. So when you say to me, why do we have a budget deficit? We have a budget deficit because we have lost um, uh, so many of our jobs here in our country, and we haven't been able to match the imports coming into this country with the same amount of exports going out. So we've been hemorrhaging jobs and productivity inside this country. Well, as you point out, we've got 25 years of these trade agreements not benefiting the U.S. economy. That's a pretty strong track record. It's a pretty strong statement to make. It also happens to be true. So let me ask you this. Is that because we struck bad deals from the start, or are the countries that we struck the deals with not honoring their end of the agreement? Which do you think it is? It's both. I think that the United States should have signed an agreement with Europe where, or any country, New Zealand, for example, where we share their political values and where there's an actual rule of law. What we ended up doing is signing agreements with countries, often third world countries, that um, had governments that were not transparent, they do not operate by the rule of law, and we ended up bringing down the standard of living in the United States in other countries, creating exploited workforces where those governments care nothing about their own people, and creating a race to the bottom globally. What we should have done to sign an agreement with republics, with a rule of law, and then invite in other countries into that arrangement. Uh, But we haven't done that for a quarter century. It's very hard to go back and try to piece together. I've got to try to try to piece Humpty Dumpty back together again. I have a bill, the Balancing Trade Act, HR 1403 that would require our presidents to renegotiate any trade agreement with countries where we carry a trade deficit of more than 10 billion dollars for three consecutive years. Mm-hmm. We have to somehow begin addressing the fact even the recent Korea agreement rather than having the positive trade surplus they said we would have. It's a negative so I guess what you're saying is if we've struck an agreement and the other party isn't honoring the agreement and we've got a $10 billion deficit as a result of them not honoring their end of the agreement, 
uh, those agreements should be revisited. And, and actually, to me, and I think the listeners today, uh, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Uh, that's how it really works in business. If you don't honor your agreements and your contracts, you either go back in and renegotiate or all bets are off. Then we have Correct. to take our uh, first scheduled break. When we come back, we're going to find out whether concerns over the Oval Office overreach are warranted or not. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Costa Report. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. The sun is high in the sky, which means it's time to get your RV and trailers ready to roll. Hi, I'm Rena Mills, owner of RV Service Center of Santa Cruz, your locally owned RV parts and repair center with over 38 years of service to the Central Coast community. In addition to RV repairs, our qualified staff services and maintains boat, horse, and utility trailers, in addition to toy haulers. We also restore vintage RVs and work hand-in-hand with all insurance companies to ensure that your RV is restored to its original condition. Fisherman RV Service Center is now offering 20% off its axle service for your boat trailer, a must-do every two years or 5,000 miles. Get your RV and trailers ready to roll with the help of your friends at RV Service Center. You'll find us easy to reach and easy to use at 2525 Mission Street, Cross Streets, Mission and Swift Streets in Santa Cruz. Call us at 831-427-0881 or RVS scsc.com Have you noticed that food just doesn't taste good anymore? Why is that? If you eat food, you'll want to know this. Our fruits, grains, and vegetables contain less and less nutrition every year. Chances are even your organic plants don't have anywhere near the 70-plus minerals that make a plant healthy and delicious. Listen up, home gardeners, farmers, growers, and lovers of good food. This is Andy Anderson telling you that you can go beyond organic. Perk up your plants and revitalize your fields with blooming minerals from Longevity. This marvelous soil conditioner will re mineralize your soil with up to 76 organically bound earth elements. That means healthier and better looking crops that resist bugs, mold, cold, and other nasties that can wipe you out. Commercial farmers are reporting faster growth, more yield, and higher brick scores. That means better tasting food for you and me. Get Bloomin' Minerals in powder and liquid form from a spray bottle for houseplants to 55-gallon drums for professional growers. Call us now to order toll-free 888-245-0300. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is one of the senior most ranking members in the U.S. House of Representatives, Ms. Marcy Kaptur. 
Now, Ms. Kaptur, this past week the president signed uh, into law legislation that allows him to uh, fast-track the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. So, so tell us what fast-tracking really means and why some members of Congress feel this is dangerous. Uh, fast-track, uh, as its name implies, is a way for a bill to move through Congress very quickly without sufficient time for members to amend it. Uh, it's really a procedural gimmick that handcuffs members of the House and Senate. So if there's something wrong with the trade agreement, we either we can't do anything about it. We either vote for the agreement or we vote against the agreement, which is a thousand pages long. But we can't offer amendments or hold hearings to question the trade negotiators about complex or controversial provisions. You have to eat it whole or not at all. Uh, so we effectively give away our deliberative rights under the Constitution. Now, as I understand it, there are 28 or 29 chapters. This is an agreement that's over 1,000 pages. And uh, as you point out, four or five chapters have to do with trade. Feels to me, not having access to the agreement itself, feels to me like a lot of other stuff got bundled into this. Yes, and the full implications cannot be understood Uh, except by those who drafted it. There were about 600 transnational corporations that helped write the deal, and so it heavily favors those that operate as transnationals in the global realm, such as financial services giants that uh, want to open world markets to derivatives and other financial instruments that brought the world economy to its knees back in 2008 and 9. but they have so much power they're able to sit in these private meetings, meet with uh, trade representatives from other countries, from our country, and help actually write the language when Congress can't. And so it takes away representative government, and it subjects the United States, as happened with the country of origin labeling, to having our own laws overturned uh, by very few global players. It really is a great transfer of power uh, to those. And I'm not saying these instrumentalities don't deserve their fair day, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't deserve it all. And they don't deserve to write the rules without having our people's elected representatives be able to play, um, you know, a hand, significant hand, in the agreements that are struck. So what happens is, for instance, with the Korean free trade deal, which was the last one to come through Congress, they said we would sell so many cars in Korea. We are being inundated with Korean imports, and we've not been able to get our cars in their market, a few thousand. Uh, that isn't what was promised. We were promised balanced trade accounts. We are in the red more and more every year with Korea. So what happens is that our people, our businesses, our small businesses, have attrition of workers, of sales, And this happens over a period of time until you lose entire industries like the furniture industry, the textile industry, uh, the automotive parts industry. Uh, We've lost over two-thirds of our manufacturing jobs in this country. You know, we're saying, how much more? You know, Um, and many of the jobs that are now being created um, do not pay living wages. Uh, These are the sectors that are creating jobs at the fastest rate, the service sector, um, and you see the average wages of America's workers in places like I represent having gone down an average of $7,000 since the passage of NAFTA in the early part of the 1990s. So America's middle class has been shrinking, and yes, there are some pockets of uh, great prosperity built around certain industries, but if you really look at the country as a whole, uh, the younger generation is in debt now. Um, they, uh, their prospects are not as positive as those who grew up in the post-World War II generation. So these kind of trade agreements have real intergenerational impacts as they move our productive wealth elsewhere and markets in other places remain closed to our products. Well, let's talk a little bit about this fast-tracking uh, and trying to get a thousand-page agreement through Congress in 60 days. Um, what, what do you say to folks who claim that allowing Congress to amend or even delay the approval of a trade agreement just simply wouldn't work? Because 
the other countries with whom the agreement is struck, they require certainty when they agree to terms. I mean, we can't really go back and forth in some endless cycle. The president's got to have some authority to make these deals. And so long as they're subject to final congressional approval, well, Congress still has the authority to turn the agreement down. You have the authority to uh, turn it down, but you don't have the opportunity to perfect it. And um, as I said earlier, we're handcuffed uh, to whatever draft deal is uh, cast at us. Uh, in the Congress. Right. And um, and in this case, really... you've got 29 chapters and only four to five have to do with trade. That You've raised an interesting point about this really being a treaty. Is this yes. a treaty or is this an agreement? I believe that it is a treaty. I believe the last several trade agreements have been treaties, and they should be subject to complete review by the Senate and uh, requiring three-quarters of the members voting for them. They are this significant. Uh, when you have this kind of an impact on the economy of the United States and the rule of law globally, you are really talking about significant power being removed from the elected representatives of the American people and put in these instrumentalities that are beyond the reach of the average small business, beyond the reach of the average citizen, frankly, beyond the reach of majority of members of Congress. Now, we, we seem to be uh, almost in a pattern here of calling a lot of things agreements and using other words and not, not calling them treaties. Uh, it, it, it comes to mind the Iran nuclear agreement. Again, an agreement, not a treaty. And then, and, 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 and now we have uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, an agreement, not a treaty. Um, don't we have to go back to some basic definitions of what, you know, you can't keep bundling things in and calling it an agreement. At some point, it has to be recognized as a treaty, uh, and, and it has to be subject to two-thirds majority of a vote of uh, Congress. Um, uh, what do we do about that? Well, what we, sh- what we do about that, the one choice we have right now is to defeat the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and to negotiate uh, an agreement that is more complete and to do so as a treaty. Uh, yes, a lot of waters under the dam. Yes, 600 corporations have been very busy in writing this agreement, but it actually, uh, I think, is counter to the interests of our country intergenerationally, and we have to make ourselves felt. And so the the only thing the American people can do at this point regarding the TPP is to urge their member of Congress to vote no. Mm-hmm. And usually what will happen is they will discharge the bill to the floor very quickly um, and uh, bring it up at a point where debate will be limited. Many times they've done it after midnight or right before Congress is ready to leave for the uh, Christmas holidays. Yeah, yeah. So they always figure a way to jimmy-rig it. So. Yeah, I know. They wait till everybody's out of town. And, you right. Know, it, isn't that always the case? Uh, <laughs> now, we have to take another commercial break, but stay right where you are. We'll be back with more from Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur. You're listening to the Costa Report. Have you checked out the Costa Report blog yet? Well, what are you waiting for? There's no quicker way to find out what newsmakers are saying than the Costa Report blog at RebeccaCosta.com. It's where the former CEO of Apple and PepsiCo, John Scully, predicts where the next tech breakthroughs are going to come from. And also where Trent Lott explains why a GOP reversal of the Senate nuclear option will signal real change in our nation's capital. And the Costa Report blog is where you'll discover why Alan Dershowitz is worried that ISIS is adopting Hamas-like tactics. You'll find all this and more at the Costa Report blog. A new blog is posted every week, and they're short, pithy, and tell the unvarnished truth. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com to get the latest blog. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And while you're there, be sure to register for updates and breaking news. The Costa Report blog. Bringing you the news the big networks don't and won't. Calling all runners. That glow you see on the horizon is the 30th annual Firecracker Running Extravaganza. 
featuring the famous Thrill of the Hill 10K, a flat fast 5K, and a kids 1K race. The gun goes off at 8 a.m. sharp on Saturday, July 4th, Independence Day, at Harvey West Park. Register today at SantaCruzFirecracker10K.org. We'll see you on July 4th at Harvey West Park. Hi, Registered Pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. I've been seeing a lot of commercials for Cleanser Toner Treatment Triad, the brainchild of two Stanford-trained dermatologists. They came up with the idea in the early 90s, and the rest made acne medication history. And if you've seen the commercials, you know why. They're very compelling. From movie star endorsements to regular teen testimonials, make a convincing appeal that all you have to do is use their products, and your blemishes will be banished for good. The active ingredient is called benzoyl peroxide. It kills acne bacteria, and it also helps remove excess and accumulated pore-clogging skin cells and their debris, as well as skin oils. This creates a smoother look to the skin and improves its appearance. Its anti-inflammatory effects may also support skin healing. Benzoyl peroxide is also a poison to cells, and it can ultimately kill them. Given its well-known toxicity, the FDA limits the use of benzoyl peroxide to 5 and 10%, and acne blemishes, which are really nothing more than the end result of cell chemistry gone nuts, is not really a drug or medication issue anyway. The typical acne blemish is caused by the acne blemish's messed up biochemistry. Stress and growth hormones are involved too, insulin and blood sugar, and so is the digestive system. Nutritional deficiencies don't help, and that's pretty much it. Stay away from foods that cause digestive distress, and stay away from foods that mess up your blood sugar chemistry. Use lots of electrolytes, B vitamins, rich amounts of veggies and veggie juices. Those can also help, and so can nutritional supplements like zinc, selenium, vitamin A, and essential fatty acids, among others. Pharmacist Ben here, urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Vern Troyer, a.k.a. Mini-Me. Okay, I know much ruder in England. He's very creepy. Sorry. He's not creepy. How dare you? Sorry. Right? He's not creepy. String her up. I love the media. He's not creepy. Not the media. We'll we'll send you into San Francisco. (laughs) He hates dwarves. You'll be strung up in Union Square. Sorry. Don't miss Rosemary Chalmers straight out of sensitivity training on Good Morning Monterey Bay weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on KSCO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us today, our guest is Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur. Uh, Now, I'd like to switch gears here for a moment. The uh, Export-Import Bank Authorization, uh, it's just expired. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, the Export-Import Bank uh, is an institution that helps to promote U.S. exports. For example, I have companies involved in the solar industry. Uh, 98% of their exports are financed by the Exim Bank. Uh, It is an instrumentality of the United States. And it supports millions of jobs and billions of dollars of U.S. exports around the world every year. And uh, what happened was that there were some, and I hate to be too partisan about this, but in the Republican Party, who for some reason do not like the Export-Import Bank, and they want to stop it from functioning. And as of July 1st, yesterday at midnight, the bank, if they allowed the bank's authorization to expire which means that it can continue to function through the end of this fiscal year, which is the end of September. Um, But it really doesn't have any um, legal authority. Uh, It basically expires. And I'm going, what sense does this make? Here you've got an instrument that helps our businesses meet global competition. We are losing the battle. Uh, to imports coming in here at much greater rates than our exports going out. And we've got people in Congress who are hurting the businesses in our country that are able to export. It makes no sense, but that's what's happening at the federal level right now. What's the alternative? The alternative is to pass legislation to extend the life of the bank. 
to allow it to continue. But let's just say we let it expire. What's the consequence of allowing it to expire? We're still going to be importing. We're still going to be exporting. Well, it'll make it much more difficult for companies that are exporting, for instance, into the Chinese market to get competitive financing here in the United States. And it hurts. I can't imagine how many companies in California use the Export-Import Bank. It's huge. Right, but Uh, without the Export-Import Bank... Uh, you just simply have to go to uh, the commercial side, and it and, would cost and shop more. it, right? Don't you? Don't if you shop it? You shop it, but a lot of these companies can't get financing from the private sector. For instance, like give uh, us an example solar- of why you couldn't get financing from the private sector. I don't know all the reasons they deny it. I mm-hmm. really maybe they don't feel comfortable working in China. Uh, many times they have no experience. Uh, depending on where the company is located, in financing a deal, let's say in Korea or Taiwan or Dominican Republic or wherever it is. And so the Export-Import Bank is able to uh, create the kind of financing. Plus we have um, special OPIC insurance, uh, insuring exports from the United States that go to countries that sometimes don't pay their bills. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to work. I worked with one company for almost five years to get the Chinese to pay for steel that they had received. So Export Import Bank, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, are uh, insurance programs that are available. These help companies compete in a very uneven global playing field. I see. So they have certain expertise, you would say. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I guess, uh, you know, there's a counter-argument that by opening it up and and forcing companies to go to the commercial sector, the commercial sector will have to develop that expertise and become more knowledgeable about the import-export business. Uh, It will cause these banking and financial institutions to become more global. What what do you say about that argument? Is that that ridiculous? I, I would say that that is naive. (laughs) <laughs> okay. And I would say that um, for many of these companies that are not the big transnational companies, although many, I mean, big companies like General Electric use the Export-Import Bank, um, uh, but many of our smaller and medium-sized companies uh, simply will not be financed by their local bank. It won't happen. Now, it's it's one thing to talk about uh, how trade deficits um Export-import bank authorization and so on and so forth are affecting the job market here in the United States. And it's quite another when you go out and talk to employers who have a lot of highly skilled jobs that they can't fill. And, and, you know, I speak with technology, pharma, engineering, and other companies every week, and they complain that they've got lots of openings, that they can't find people with the right training and educational background. There seems to be this big gap between the skill sets that people have and then what progressive growing companies need. Um, Does that worry you? It worries me a lot. And uh, I've also seen a disconnect over the years that I've served between our educational institutions and our businesses. I can give you many examples where in years past, decades past actually, the business community would create a business industry day where teachers would come into companies and they would learn about the um, activities of that company, the kinds of skills they needed. And I know people are working at trying to rebuild these connections, but the kind of close connectivity that I knew before, I don't believe exists today. Um, And it's more hit and miss. And those communities that are successful, I think, uh, have built a very close cooperation between their educational establishment and private enterprise. And we need to do that so they understand the jobs that are available. Let me give you an example, the rail industry. I represent a huge railroad industry here. And the average, because they are not headquartered in our region, but they have major operations in our region, mm-hmm. many, many people do not even think of applying to that industry. And they're not encouraged to do so by their schools because the people in charge don't even see this industry and its employment potential. Now, I'm sure I'll get a phone call and somebody will say, well, I know about it. But in general, I'm saying most people do not. And 
there are many skills, whether it's air controllers, whether it's truck drivers, whether it's uh, people who can do uh, medical data entry, whatever the topic is, what's happening is that because of school cutback, uh, uh, budgets cutback in schools, many of the counselors in schools that used to do career counseling are doing divorce counseling or they're doing um, uh, other kinds of alcohol and drug counseling. They're not doing career counseling. And maybe in California there are some select school systems that do a good job at that, but I can tell you in what we've been through in the economy in the Midwest, a lot of the career counseling has just evaporated. And the students are not getting the up-to-date best information to help them, to guide them in their career uh, decisions. So it's a problem across the country. It it definitely is, and I'm glad you took a moment to address that with us today. Um, In particular, you know, I I take a lot of heat for agreeing with Steve Jobs uh, some 15, 20 years ago when he made the outlandish statement that those manufacturing jobs are not coming back. Everybody, you know, jumped on this bandwagon and said, how can he even say that? Now, the Economic Policy Institute says that for every billion dollars invested in manufacturing in the U.S., we produce about 5,000 jobs. And and, and likewise, when we uh, import rather than invest in manufacturing, we're killing jobs. So, but, but here's the thing, low labor rates lower safety and welfare standards abroad, uh, the introduction of robotics and other automation. When you, when you add all that up, is more manufacturing where our country should be really focused? I believe very much in a self-reliant nation. I believe in growing our own food, uh, processing that food. I believe in creating our own artistry um, in many sectors. I believe in making items. Uh, and you produce more wealth rather than importing it. You really produce the engine for growth. And I can tell you, with the refinancing of the auto industry in the Midwest, its muscles are lifting the whole region up. Yes, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We do, we've do. we got a hard break here, uh, and we're going to have to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, let's pick that up. What has manufacturing really done for the country in recent times and the U.S. economy? You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli. Scott, as Caraccioli's become much more popular throughout the world, have you scaled up production? No, we're always going to stay small. We make about 3,500 cases total a year. About 1,000 of those are still wine. About 2,500 of them are sparkling wine. And we only make two sparkling wines, a Brut Rosé and a Brut Cuvée. And really being able to focus on such a small set of wines in our portfolio and two varietals gives us the opportunity to really perfect what we're doing and develop programming that doesn't get distracted and is really just focused on exactly what we want to produce which is vintage method champenois bubbles out of the Santa Lucia Highlands year after year. Let our knowledgeable staff introduce you to Caraccioli Sparkling and Still Wines at our tasting room on Dolores Street in Charming Carmel-by-the-Sea. To learn more, visit us online at C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I-Cellars.com or give us a call at 831-622-7722. Biodiversity is the very fabric of our lives. It is everything around us, all of nature, but human impact is diminishing biodiversity at an alarming rate. And because of that, the intricate web of biodiversity is unraveling in ways we don't fully understand, and our world is becoming less resilient. That's why we are biodiversity advocates. We're the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. Guided by the greatest living naturalist, E.O. Wilson, we champion research and education that expands our understanding of biodiversity and informs worldwide conservation efforts. The E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation is building a movement of environmental stewards like you who share our sense of responsibility for the living world that is our home. Join us in our quest to protect biodiversity, the fabric of our lives. Visit eowilsonfoundation.org.
This is an announcement for all people who want to take a risk-free challenge to whiten their teeth in five minutes. By calling now, you can whiten your teeth in five minutes using clinically proven power swabs. This risk-free challenge is for people whose smile has been yellowed by coffee, tea, red wine, or smoking. The Power Swabs 5-Minute Challenge is available by responding to this advertisement. If lines are busy, try again. Because the Power Swabs 5-Minute Challenge is exclusive, it's not available in drugstores. Power Swabs was formulated by Dr. Martin Ginniger and whitens teeth with a patented tooth detergent and whitening agent. It's so effective, we challenge you to try it for 5 minutes to see how white your smile could be. Get it risk-free. Dial 1-800-973-6563. 1-800-973-6563. Transform your smile into a wow, you look great smile. Dial 1-800-973-6563. 1-800-973-6563. I'm here with Sharon and Ron of the Bay Briar Shop, Soquel. On Porter, 3015 Porter, off of Soquel Drive. Come to the Bay Briar Shop and get Longevity products. You have probably the greatest selection of the most popular products where you can just go in and buy it with cash, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, basically, you can come in and get the product, pay cash check or credit card, and walk out with the product. The Bay Briar Shop, 3015 Porter, off of Soquel Drive. And Soquel. What's the phone number? 475-1751. See you at the Bay Briar. Who's Kelly? Who is this? And are they alive or dead? Well, I guess it'd be weird if they're all one or the other. I'm sure some of them are dead. Who is this, though? Who is it? Yes, yes. Who, who? is Who? Who? Oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, the who. It's the who. So whose birthday is it? Someone, a band member of the who, guess whose birthday it is. Well, you already told me. I know, but God, you're supposed to pretend like you don't know just for the... So I'm supposed to sound smart? Yes. Don't miss the afternoon know-it-alls, Dave, Kelly, and Ben on Flight 1080, weekdays 4 to 7 on KSCO AM 1080. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and our guest today is Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur. And before we went to break, you were making the point that the U.S. economy does, in fact, need and benefit from increasing manufacturing jobs. Uh, but it almost sounded like you were going one step further and saying that the U.S. needs to be more self-reliant. Oh, I believe that, yes. I think that we still depend too much on energy imports, and for a long time, uh, those energy imports, when prices of gasoline went over $4 a gallon, drove us into deep recession uh, repeatedly. And so we have to, and we are making progress, but we have to be energy independent as a country for no other reason than our own strategic uh, interests and national security interests. Um, but beyond that, in terms of food production, California has made such a major contribution uh, to American food security. Uh, and... Uh, now faces the challenges because of fresh water supplies. And we have to think about the future of this country and make sure America's food secure. We don't want to be reliant on imported food. We want to be able to produce our own food inside the borders of this country. But Again, doesn't that say a lot about our foreign policy that, you know, I, I, I notice that when our foreign policy is broken and we're not doing a good job overseas, we suddenly talk about, well, we've got to get more self-reliant. And then when things are going well with our with our partners and our allies, uh, then, you know, self-reliance doesn't seem to be such a priority anymore. Well, we can't close our borders, but the point is there's only a certain... We have to make sure that we maintain domestic capacity uh, inside the borders of this country for our own security interests into the future. Mm -hmm. And so I believe very much, whether it's the automotive industry, uh, we had a vote on Congress uh, in Congress on this issue of whether or not we would have an American automotive industry. And thank God, a majority of members said yes. But large numbers said no. And I don't know any industrial power in the world that doesn't have a major uh, transportation industry, transportation manufacturing industry. So when you start to lose major elements of that base, you lose your defense industrial base at the same time. Well, this is an interesting philosophical argument because on the one hand, you have folks who say, uh, figure out what you're good at in the global economy. And specialize in that and become the go-to country for that thing or for those things. And then on the other hand, you say, well, but that leaves you exposed. 
If you can't produce your own vehicles for the military, you can't produce your own fuel to to run those vehicles, uh, you're creating a security problem. Absolutely. And so you have to have a balanced approach. And uh, we've seen many, well, look at Europe right now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They are so dependent on Russia for gas supplies that they can't exercise their own political beliefs, which are liberty-loving and not repressive. And yet their hands are tied because of this energy dependency. So we would wish that other countries would always operate in the best interests of their neighbors, but that doesn't always happen. So the United States has to be prepared. We have our Constitution demands that we provide for the common defense, and that has many layers of definition. And we have to be wise and we have to be self-sufficient inside uh, these borders. We have the environment and the natural resources to do that. So we'd best be about maintaining the kind of vigilance that our ancestors had. Well, I think a good case in point is the recent uh, issue with rare earth elements that China declared, their government declared that they plan to monopolize. And certainly we saw an instance where they had a skirmish with the, the Japanese and cut them off completely with rare earth elements, which is to your point, there are certain things that you have to be able to produce on your own soil. Yes, absolutely. And in terms of strategic metals and many of these elements that you're talking about, many years ago I passed an amendment to a defense bill with the help of then Ron Dellums, who was from Oakland, California, Chairman Dellums, Mm -hmm. uh, to place a priority on the United States maintaining its own strategic metals reserve because we were becoming dependent on Russia for some of these. And I thought, you know, I want to be an optimist, but I'm also a realist in terms of what can happen in the world. And there were some people who were saying, oh, Russia's changing, you know. Well, yes, Russia is changing, but there are certain habits that are hard to stop. Invasion seems to be one of them. And the United States should not become dependent on essential items for its own existence. And so we have to have that consciousness. Uh, And we are moving to new um, capabilities such as in recycling, even in terms of industrial products, where we are recouping some of these for the future. And so we are having, you know, the American people step by step are meeting the challenge of a new era when, by the way, this country is headed to have 500 million people by 2050. We have to be a much more mindful nation about how we manage our resources because globally they are limited. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that one thing that we're pointing out here is that these trade deficits also indicate how dependent we've become on certain countries uh, that maybe we don't want to be so dependent on for our existence. As you point out, uh, Russia, who would have thought we'd be back to Cold War uh, in a Cold War environment as we are now? Nobody would have guessed that. But as you say, as much as you want to be optimistic, uh, you got to be a realistic. I think it was Ronald Reagan that said, trust but verify, you know, and uh, and I, I guess if we'd been verifying, uh, uh, we would have not gotten ourselves in the situation that we are in with uh, rare earth elements as well. I'll just, I'll just mention one item. There was a photo in the paper of the president of Russia, Mr. Putin, Vladimir Putin, visiting Pope uh, Francis at the Vatican. Yes. And I looked at that photo and I thought, you know, the media does unusual things. We live in this media era. But the fact is, the Pope can't go to Russia. The Pope's church cannot function in a normal way in Russia. Uh, the languages that are spoken, in, let's say to say mass inside of Russia, um, are not in the native language. Uh, they can be German or Polish or whatever. Uh, I have visited sisters and priests in Russia who, who have to have three-month visas. They're kicked out of Russia after three months. The pressure on any other denomination to function there, whether it's Mormons, whether it's uh, Ukrainian Orthodox, is repressive. And yet, and I'm thinking, what message is this sending to the world? Um, I, I just found it somewhat um, 
an out-of-body moment <laughs> to, to see this. I'm glad they met. I'm glad whatever they talked about, you know. But the fact is, the political analysis of, of that particular organization's ability to function in Russia, I saw very... I haven't read one article yet about that. Well, uh, I could tell you, I could invite you back and we could do a whole hour about why the media does not tell the backstory. I don't really know how these pictures get uh, plastered all over the place and we could ignore the fact that Putin had to go to another place to see the Pope. <laughs> he had to go to another country to see the Pope. Um, but, but, but you know, look, the media has fallen down on the job, and I'm the first to admit it. Uh, we try to do what we can here uh, once a week and uh, try to set the story straight. And I appreciate you coming on uh, the program today to help us do that. Lastly, before we run out of time, do you have a website where listeners can go to stay abreast of your activities? They have, all they do is they just type in my name, uh, Congresswoman, Marcy Captor, M-A-R-C-Y-K-A-P-T-U-R, and it'll pop up, and uh, they can go to our official site, and there's a way for them to log in. They can look at all the different information we have on there on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the Exim Bank, uh, many of the issues that we've talked about today. Okay, terrific. Well, that is all the time that we've got today. But before we say goodbye, I want to thank you for bringing the Pacific Trade Deal to the public's attention and for your service to our country. Thank you, Ms. Captor. Thank you, Rebecca, for all you do. If your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Marcy Captor, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you missed the full interview with Captor or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And if your station is leaving us after this first hour, my guest next week is none other than Democratic presidential nominee and former governor of Rhode Island, Mr. Lincoln Chaffee, who says it's time for the U.S. to join the rest of the world and go metric. Will going metric help the U.S. economy? Find out when presidential hopeful Lincoln Chaffee joins us next week on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 